For those of you who weren't here last week, uh, we started uh, a lesson on the church. So we're continuing this, this Foundations of Faith series. We're going over all these different, um, all this spiritual background, uh, different things concerning Christianity that are important to know. We talked about God. We've talked about uh, Jesus. We've talked about Scripture. A lot of those, like, you know, big concepts and items that we want to understand either as a refresher for our own faith or when we're teaching others. Um, but the point I brought up last week is we really haven't talked about the church yet. So last week we started uh, a lesson that I've uh, called uh, what the church is and isn't. So what I'm doing is I'm alternating here different talking points. I'm going to bring up something that the church is and then I'll talk about something that it isn't and then we'll go back and forth until we're done. So we got two done last week. Uh, we talked about the church being a building. Pretty pretty straightforward. We spent some time talking about that. I thought there was some, some good discussion to be had. Uh, and then, on the other hand, we, we mentioned that the church is not a social club. The church is not a form of entertainment for people to come together uh, and then go home again. Uh, there are aspects of the church that are social, and I said for each of these knots, there's, there's a little caveat there where, okay, yeah, there is a social aspect to the church, but the church's purpose is not merely to be social. Um, so we covered those two points as well as some extra stuff, and then we ran out of time, so we're going to continue on this morning. All right, so third point for this lesson uh, is that the church is a body. Now, this shouldn't be too controversial for anyone. Uh, we see this all throughout Scripture, and we teach it often, um, but I did want to spend some time talking about it. The church being a body. So I'm going to read two passages uh, that I think are pretty closely related, and then, then we can talk a little bit about that. So I'm going to start off in Romans chapter 12. Uh, Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 4 and 5. For just as we have many members in one body... And all the members do not have the same function. So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Now that's the short version. The long version is in 1 Corinthians. Where Paul essentially says the same thing, but he provides a lot more detail. And he provides some examples too. Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 12. Interesting to know that this is within the context of discussing spiritual gifts. Um... But, but nonetheless, starting in verse 12 of chapter 12. For even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one Spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body... And trust me, the foot is part of the body. I learned that the hard way this week. It is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? And if the whole, bo- uh, if the whole were hearing, where would be the sense of smell? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. If they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members but one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, 
or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving one abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. <clears throat> okay, so what's the point of these passages? What, what, is, what is Paul's main idea that he's trying to convey? Sorry? Right, they're all important. They all have their roles, from, from the smallest or the least important that we would consider to the biggest or the most important or the most honorable, as it's mentioned in this passage. Uh, they all serve a purpose. They're all important. Okay? Interesting to note that their, their importance is totally independent of how they view themselves. Just because the, the, the ear doesn't think that it's that important doesn't mean it's not. And just because the eye might think it's more important doesn't mean it is. Um, the value is determined by God. The purpose of these parts of the body is determined by God. They don't determine their own purpose, and they don't determine their own worth. Uh, I think that's kind of an interesting lesson to read into this uh, as well. But the, the members being all part of the body, they all serve a role. They all serve a purpose. And each purpose that they serve is important to the functioning of the body as a whole. The body is not the same when it's missing something. Uh, if the body loses its sense of smell, then the body itself suffers from not having that sense of smell because that serves a purpose to the functioning of the entire body. And so the, the lesson here is applied to the church. This is an analogy that's applied to the church where we represent, or where the, the members of the body are us, right? That, that represents us. The body being the church, and we being the members of the body. So then how do we apply that to the church? Those lessons about the body and the members. What's the application? Everyone has a role in the work of the church. If you are a member of the body then you have a purpose. Um, if you are a member of the body and you are not functioning or you are removed, then the body suffers. The body cannot do the most that it could if it's missing its members. When all members are working together in harmony, uh, then that's when the body is at its best. And that's the representation of the church, the body of Christ. And I think you can apply this both at the local level, perhaps also at the, the broader level, right? Um, the church at large, the church worldwide. Uh, but I think for us it's particularly helpful to view it from the local perspective. Because in this, in this room right now, uh, we have many different people. We have people from different walks of life, different experiences, uh, different age groups, different abilities, you know, we're all wired differently. And that gives us the, uh, the potential, the ability 
to fulfill roles in the work of the church that others couldn't. Not everyone can do uh, this or that, you know, for, for various reasons, whether it be ability, whether it be availability. Um, not everyone can do what anyone else in the church can do. And I think that's, you know, it's kind of a beautiful part of it, right? It's because we, we aren't all the same person. We don't all, you know, we're not robots, right? You, you can't just replace the next person up with someone who was already there. Uh, we're different. And I think another point that, that we get from the, the reading is that we're also interdependent, which we kind of already talked about a little bit, but interdependent meaning relying on each other as well. Um, and for example, if, you're, if the body is trying to walk, there's a lot of things involved in that. There's the feet, which make contact with the ground and keep you standing up straight. There's the legs that propel your feet forward. There's the brain that sends the signals to the legs to move. And there's the eyes that let you know where you're going so that you don't step in something dangerous or go off your path. Um, and all of those pieces work together to accomplish a task. And I wonder how often we think about that from from a church work, from a ministry perspective. Uh, especially I want to challenge the elders and the deacons this morning. When we're thinking about the work that we do here at Midway in this community, do we think about interdependence? And do we think about um, the members that we put to do tasks and how they complement each other and how maybe one person's abilities can help another person's abilities maybe shine better? Um, how this person and that person, perhaps working together, can accomplish more than the two of them individually. I think we do that to some extent, but I think it's something to always kind of be thinking about. When you're, when you're a leader of any organization or group of people, I think a challenge that's upon you is to make the best use of the people that are there when it comes to accomplishing a goal. And I think the church is no different there. Uh, and, then when, and we see that from the reading. We see that from the scripture. Um, the pieces work together, and when they're working together, they accomplish more than they could individually. Now, one thing to keep in mind, of course, is that the body is not operating on its own, wandering around, accomplishing what it can. Uh, the body has direction, right? And so, for example, Colossians 1, verse 18 um, talking about Christ, says he is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. It says Christ is the head of the body, and in the same sentence says the church. So Christ being the head, what does that mean? Authority. Authority, okay. What else? Okay, yeah, so it provides direction. I think there's two, those are two important points that are not the same, but they're very related, right? Is that not only does the head, Christ, provide direction and provide, uh, you know, to, to kind of steers the body, tells it what to do and how to do it, but Christ also has the authority to do so. There are those who would like to be the head of the body, but the authority is not theirs. And so the combination of authority and the ability to provide direction, that's, 
That's what you get in the head of the church. That's what you get in Christ, is both of those aspects. One second. So that's Christ as the head of the body. Now another thing to think about is what is the body without the head? Dead, right? You know, the body without the head is dead. There is, you know, there's no... A disconnection there means that the rest of the body cannot function at all. It has no direction. uh, It has no authority. It cannot operate unless the head is in its rightful position. Unless Christ is the head, then the body that we have is not the body that God has envisioned. If the body or a member of the body seeks to become the head, you're not going to perform um, as the body should. And that's just like uh, in the previous passage. If the eye tries to be an ear, well, you're not going to be performing as you should. And so to an even greater extent, if, if the ear tries to become the head, well, now you're in trouble because the body's really not going to perform the way it should. The ear is not, the ear is not equipped to tell what the, the body what to do, right? That's, that belongs to the head. So anyway, am I making sense here? Am I wandering in circles? Any thoughts on this? Yeah, that's an interesting. That's an interesting point. Is is when when something happens to the body, when the body is not able to perform as it should because of injury, the the rest of the body tries to make up for it in some way. It's going to figure out a way to keep going. Um, I mean, you've probably heard of the the stories of of people who become blind, and their sense of smell becomes very powerful. Their sense of hearing becomes very powerful because the body is trying to make up for its loss. And I think that is an interesting point, is that, you know, as the church, when we, when, if we lose someone for some reason, it, it comes to us to try to figure out how to make up for that loss. Um, if someone passes away and they were running a ministry of some sort, well, what are we going to do? Are we just going to let the ministry die? Or are we going to try to find a way to fill the gap, fill the void, and continue the work? That's a good point. Anything else? All right. Well, I'm glad that we, we got to, uh, to go over uh, a simple point, a non-controversial point, because we're getting into another knot. All right. Uh, the church is not a political organization. And the same caveats apply from last week, as I mentioned, so uh, didn't nobody run me out yet. Um, but the, the church is not a, an earthly political organization. The church is the body of Christ. And so I want, should I? I think I'll, I'll, I'll speak first, then I'll read the scripture. Uh, I want to share some observations that I've begun to make as I've grown up, as I pay more attention to uh, the world around me, and I, I have a different perspective than I did as a child. And 
I, I see some disturbing trends in the church. Uh, I see Christians who become different people when uh, worldly politics gets involved. And that doesn't have to be governmental. That can be politics within the church itself. Um, I, I'm not trying to, to narrow this down too much. Um, but anyway, I, I, see, I, I have seen faithful Christians, uh, Christians who are um, hopeful, become anxious and become uh, worrisome. I've seen Christians who are kind become negative and spiteful. I've seen Christians who are loving become hateful because of this, right? Because of these factors that I would argue are not directly involved in the mission of the church. And that's concerning to me. And I don't know if you've seen the same thing or not. Um, what, I have become, what I've come to observe is that the world around us, every few years, begins this ritual of idolatry after humans and after human organizations. And over the course of a season, it reaches a fever pitch, and eventually it dies back down and life goes back to normal. And then a few years later, the idolatry starts again. Um, I have driven by buildings, houses, and seen signs that I would consider idolatrous based on the dedication that they give to humans or groups of humans who are fallible, who are not Christ. Uh, I've seen people put earthly human politicians in the place in their lives where Christ belongs. And that's concerning to me because it, it, it happens to people that I respect, it happens to people that I know, and it turns them into people that I don't recognize. And so this is more of a warning than anything else. I, I definitely want all these points in this lesson this week, last week, and probably next week to be reflective, to be something that we can go back and think about um, for all of us. Um, but these are observations that I'm making as I experience the world around me. So I want to read a couple of passages. Uh, let's start in Mark 12. Mark chapter 12 and we have an encounter here with Jesus and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. Uh, one of many encounters where they are seeking to trip him up, to put him in a bind, in a situation that would harm his ministry. So let's start Mark chapter 12, verse 13. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came, to, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a, a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, what are you, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. So why were they amazed at him? What were they trying to do? Take controversial, take controversial stand so they can put against him. 
Yeah, they were trying to, to catch Jesus in a controversy, right? To split people against him. But what would that split be? What's the actual conflict that they're trying to create based on Jesus' answer to this question? God or Caesar? Whose side are you on, right? Um, if, if Jesus says, pay your taxes to Caesar, well, the Jews will be angry because the Jews don't like Caesar, right? Um, but if Jesus says, don't pay your taxes to Caesar, well, that puts him in conflict with the worldly government because Jesus is telling Jews not to pay their taxes. So in either sense, the thought is that Jesus is going to get himself in trouble. And of course, as always, Jesus cuts through the question and gets to the point. And what he says is, render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and render to God what is God's. What does that mean? Yes, exactly. As Caesar is in a certain position, right, in the world. And we see this in, in the New Testament, in, in the epistles as well. Paul talks about this. That you're going to pay respect to the governing authorities, right? Caesar's a governing authority. He has his position because God put him there. Is Caesar a good man? No, not at all. And so what he's saying is, you give Caesar what you owe to Caesar. Pay him your taxes. You give him respect because he is the earthly ruler. Uh, obey the laws as much as is in line with your duty to Christ. Um, and, or I guess in this sense, you know, we're not quite there yet, but you get the idea. You're, you're following God. Um, and give him that because that's what he's owed. But then you give to God what's God's. And what is God's? Everything else, right? You know, ultimately, we follow God. God, we love God, right? God loves us. Um, as I said before, I have seen some disturbing things that put people in place of God in that statement, which is really weird to me. Um, God has a certain place, and no one can take that place. Especially no human can take that place. Uh, nor angel, nor anything else. And so Jesus is saying, you, you give to Caesar what is Caesar's. He is due your taxes. He is due your earthly loyalty uh, in following the laws in as much as they don't conflict with, with God. But remember that you give to God what is God's. And why is that? If we go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. Paul's writing. Um, verse 20. Uh, Paul says, For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly await for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is our citizenship? In heaven. Now we're in an interesting spot because we enjoy a type of dual citizenship. right? We have our earthly citizenship and we have our heavenly citizenship. Uh, Paul took advantage of this, being a Roman citizen, as part of his ministry. So it's not to say that we denounce our earthly citizenship. It's not to say that we denounce our role in our earthly government. Uh, but it's more about perspective, right? That our ultimate home is in heaven. And I say this to you this morning as someone who has actually spoken, affirmed the oath to protect the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. But I understand that my home is in heaven. I love my country. I work for my country. I ensure that my country meets 
some of its goals to further its um, you know, prosperity. But my home is in heaven. And so the, the question that I want to propose then when we, when we get into these issues is who do we serve, right? Who are we ultimately serving and what is our ultimate goal? Because I fear for many, if we go to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, 2 Timothy 2, verse 4. Uh, what, does, what does Paul say to Timothy? No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life so that he may please the one who enlisted him as a soldier. What's the meaning of this verse? What's Paul conveying to Timothy about a good soldier? You've got to keep your mind on your job. If you're, if you're a soldier, you're out there to perform a mission. And then when you're out there working... In the field, being a soldier, you're expected to not get entangled with the things going on outside, right? The, the entanglements of everyday life, because those are distractions. Because they distract from your ultimate mission, from what you're actually there to do. There's a lot of distractions in this world. There's a lot of things that, that are perfectly fine, but threaten to become distractions if we don't keep proper perspective. Um... And that's kind of where I want to end up my monologue. And then, of course, feel free to fire away comments or questions. Um, but anything that... There are, there are many things that, that in this world that I think, based on my study, are perfectly fine to be involved in. There's no reason that you can't be involved in things in this world. Uh, whether it be hobbies or uh, you know, local service organizations or whatever it may be. I mean, we've obviously a lot of us have jobs. That's something that's not directly part of our spiritual walk, but it's something that's involved in this world that we need to do. But the problem is when those become distractions and when those things serve to take the place of your faith. Um, those things are no replacement for your faith. Uh, you can't vote your way to heaven. And I'm relatively young to most of the people in this room, but as far as I've been voting, I've never seen Jesus on a ballot. And so keeping perspective, I think, is, is really my message for this particular point uh, in how our involvement uh, in, I mean, I'll just say it, I guess, our involvement in politics, how that affects our faith. Because I've been to congregations where you sit down for the Sunday morning Bible class and the brother in the back speaks up and he, he wants to make a point about the lesson. But his point is not, his, his comment is not based on Scripture. His comment is based on something he saw the other night on TV. And it makes you wonder, okay, where are you getting your, your moral teachings from? How much time are we spending in Scripture versus watching cable? Because when I was a kid, what was the saying from the older folks? That stuff will rot your brain. But as we grow up, keep in mind, the lesson is still true. Depend, you know, no matter whether you're a kid or an adult, that stuff will rot your brain if you spend too much time with it. Okay, comments? Questions? Disagreements? One thing about politics, we have to be careful even if, uh, if you minister. We may have a particular party that we kind of party to, but we're to preach God's word, not our opinion from what position. I've heard preachers tell you where you're supposed to vote and who you're supposed to vote for. That has nothing to do with church. 
we're there to hear God's word, not to hear politics. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and I guess I didn't want to make the point. I forgot to, but you reminded me. It's not as if there will never be an instance where a moral issue, a biblical issue, will not be an issue in our larger society. That has always been true. That will probably always be true. Um, you know of them. And I'm not saying we should be totally disengaged, right? Um, but ultimately, what is, going to, what is going to change someone's sinful lifestyle? My vote or my Bible study? There are many things that we can do in this country that are legal, but that doesn't make them good, right? There are plenty of sinful things you can do that are perfectly legal. And, and so, yeah, I'm not saying to be totally inactive in the process and not to make your, your voice heard about whether something should be, for example, legal or not. But ultimately, that's not going to convert somebody. It's going to be you sitting down with them to explain why this is wrong, regardless of what the law says, why you should change your life, you know, because of Christ, because of Christ's teachings and what awaits us, something bigger than this life. What else? Yes, sir. Yeah, we're, we're blessed in that we have an opportunity that the early church, early church didn't have, right? The government they were under was much more harsh, and they had much less voice than we do now. And, and so, as I said earlier, Paul took advantage of his citizenship, right? He took advantage of his Roman citizenship. So if there are ways for us to promote the work of the church, you know, I... I 
I definitely don't want people to walk away from this lesson this morning thinking that I told them to not be involved, right? To not take yourself out. Uh, because we're in the world, right? We're not of the world, but we are in the world. And we are put in situations with opportunities uh, by God, right? And so how we take advantage of the things he's given us, including our position you know, in, in the world, uh, we have the power to influence things that, that uh, the early church didn't. So yeah, definitely, I definitely don't want people to get the impression that I'm saying not to be involved. Okay, yeah, and, but I'm glad you elaborated. Um, my point is perspective, keeping things in perspective and not letting the affairs that gum up our TV channels soil our hearts, which is what I see sometimes. Anything else? All right, back to uh, a safer point for me. Um, I'll do one more this morning. Um, so going back to is, uh, the church is a kingdom, which I guess is kind of funny when you trail over from what we just talked about, uh, but the church is also a kingdom. Uh, Colossians chapter 1, i got a few minutes, Colossians chapter 1, 13 through 14, and we, we see the kingdom analogy a lot, but this is one I just wanted to bring out. Uh, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of his son, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of, of Christ. The church is a kingdom. Well, what does a kingdom need? Well, a kingdom needs a king, obviously. Jesus. Um, God, right? Owning this kingdom. This is, this is his kingdom. Uh, a kingdom needs a domain, um, which is the entire world in that sense, but also, of course, thinking beyond kingdom of heaven. Um, and a kingdom needs subjects, which is us, right? We are subjects in the kingdom, just as we as mem- are members of the body, just as we as builders uh, in the church, we are subjects in the kingdom. We serve our king. And so... A point that I thought about when, when coming over this one is the kingdom's not a democracy, right? You know, we, we have a voice in our earthly government, but the, the, the kingdom of God is not a democracy. It's a kingdom. God is in control. I don't vote God out of office if I don't like something he says. Uh, God has said, God has given his will, and that is his will as king of the church. Um, God's in charge. And what God says goes. One interesting point that I've heard mentioned before that I wanted to kind of bring out is um, does the kingdom exist currently? The kingdom of God. Or is it something only in the future? Yeah, so... So some people, I think, get caught up in this thy kingdom come kind of idea, which, correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember correctly, that should be been in the Gospels before the church was established. But a lot of people, I think, get caught up in kingdom of heaven, thy kingdom come, and they think that the kingdom is only something that's going to happen in the future. But the kingdom is now, right? If the kingdom is the church, the kingdom is now. We are in the kingdom. God is ruling. Um... 
Christ is seated uh, ruling over the kingdom. And so I think that provides a more a sense of urgency that a lot of people don't have who, who may not view the kingdom as something that's currently going on, that currently exists. We're not waiting on anything anymore. We are the church, and we are out doing the Lord's work. We are serving in the kingdom, serving in His, his army, um, doing His will here on earth, um, trying to expand the, the realm, the domains of the kingdom. Uh, through going out and, and teaching others. And it's clearly brought forth in this verse, when you read the verse, it states the fact that he's transferred us to the kingdom. Right. And Paul was speaking to those Christians who were alive at that time in Colossae. Yep. He didn't say that God will transfer you to the kingdom. He said he has transferred us. True, yeah. So the way it's presented to the, to the Colossians is it's already happened. It's not that it's going to happen. It already has happened. And I like the I like the way that it's phrased too, because uh, God did the transferring, right? It's like He picked us up and dropped us in His kingdom. So just as we saw in in or just as we see in Acts chapter two, right? God was adding to their number. We see here God has transferred us into His kingdom based on our obedience. Uh, and so, as members of the kingdom, we go and we serve our King. And he is the king, we are the subjects, we view him as such, we follow what he says. Alright, um, any more comments? We had the buzzer, so I know I've gone over a little bit. Nope, okay. So, so next week we'll wrap up. Um, we got two more points and my conclusion, so we should be good to finish next week. I appreciate your comments again this morning and your attention. And I hope to be able to finish up with you next week. Thank you.